Welcome to the Mind Vine Podcast, where we challenge the stigma associated with mental illness through conversations about a variety of issues impacting mental health. Here we bring you news, views, and interviews that intrigue, educate, and celebrate recovery. Leading us on this journey are the hosts of the Mind Vine Podcast, Daryl Mathers and Chris Bovey. Welcome to the Mind Vine Podcast. My name is Daryl Mathers. I'm joined by my co-host, who has actually taken a few off. Uh, in the last little while, but he's back. Chris Bovey, welcome. You mean a few like pounds or time? Definitely not pounds. <laughs> but no, I think we've welcome. done, uh, I think I've done six solo or something like that with uh, different things going around the hospital. So this is our first one back. And we actually have a few planned where we're going to be on site at the same place, same time, being respectful of everything that's going on, but uh, starting to get a little back to normal. Although the world is still um, not normal. Uh, in Ontario here, cases are going up. Um, you know, we're currently in red uh, as we speak, as we sit here today, but things are, are changing. How are you and your and your family and your your network managing as uh, <laughs> it's, we're now into December and almost at the end of 2020? Yeah, it's, you know, I'm sure similar to you. I think, you know, our concern out here is right on the cusp of being a lockdown and what that, you know, once you get to that, what, how does that change things before the holidays? Um, I think we're all kind of hitting that COVID fatigue where, you know, um, certainly we're hopeful 2021 with a vaccine will change things, but, um, you know, I'll be happy not to do another Zoom meeting at some point, no offense to Zoom, but it'd be nice to, to get back in touch with people. And I think, you know, same with, with our kids and stuff, just getting back to some normalcy with their friends and, and, and moving forward. So uh, hopefully we get there, we get there soon if we, we kind of do the right thing, but we're, you know, we're all kind of managing and, and learning it to adapt, I think, but it's, I think we're all kind of tired of it. <laughs> Yeah, I I agree. It's uh, personally, I know last time or one of the last times we did a podcast, Kelly Rudy was our guest, and you mentioned like it's okay not to be okay. That he uh, we had a little bit of discussion about that, and I noticed like, lately, and I was trying to figure out like why, and uh, you know, like I'm not typically an anxious person, but like sometimes it builds up and builds up, and I was experiencing that recently. And then uh, it dawned on me, like I haven't played, but I haven't played hockey in a month. Uh, I picked up uh, cycling during the pandemic, but that was when it was spring and summer. And uh, now, you know, that's been three weeks since we've been able to get out. Uh, my kids' activities have all stopped. So all I, you know, I used to be on the ice three times a week at minimum and all that stopped. And it's like finally dawned on me, you know, like, maybe why right so i actually went for a run yesterday for the first time in like eight and a half months something like that but like i it, it's uh and what's fearful or what i'm fearful of is like we might have three more months of this of this yeah oh. well and I, for me like i don't i'm pretty bad when it comes to individual activity i i I play, t I like team sports and so obviously that presents a challenge but but you're right it just you know when you go out and you exercise and you take part in that, just your whole outlook, right? You you know, food tastes better. You're getting exercise. Your heart's beating. You're kind of able to process things a little bit more and not sort of sluggish and sort of anxious and depressed. So, um, yeah, I think it's it's harder to find those opportunities. But you're you know, good for you for for getting out and doing some of that stuff because it 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 can make a world of difference. 
Yeah, actually, it's amazing because I felt like instantly better. Like even just like halfway through, just you know, just sweating, <laughs> right? Like which you know, like you walk or you do different things, but like the actual act of sweating, like the the difference it made in my emotional health. Well, I remember Stan Kutcher, who we had Dr. Kutcher uh, on the show, and he talks about exercise, but yet you have to get it to a certain level where you know you're getting so many beats per minute where you're really working up a sweat. And that's when the endorphins kick in, when you start to feel better. So um, making sure you kind of do that stuff. So there's no surprise that when you did that, you started to mm -hmm. sort of have a different outlook for sure. Well, one of the things that you mentioned, you know, not wanting another Zoom meeting anytime soon, um, but I would say one of the positives of this pandemic uh, has been Zoom uh, in a sense for us to kind of connect with some people that we maybe otherwise wouldn't have, right? We was, right? This wasn't something we did in the podcast up until uh, April when, you know, we decided that we had to, uh, we had to get back out here and find a way to uh, keep producing podcasts. But we've been able to connect with Kelly Rudy, Kelsey McEwen, a uh, well, number of different people with uh, patient stories, Jack Armstrong. So, that, you know, it's been a real positive. And I think today we're going to talk to two guys that we wouldn't have had the chance to, to maybe talk to because they're, I think they're in the West end of Toronto would have been a big ordeal for them to come to Ontario shores, but uh, we're about to, to talk to not quite yet, but we're about to talk to Rick Vive and who's a former Toronto Maple Leaf, well, former captain played probably the worst era of uh, Maple Leafs history, but certainly somebody I'm uh, quite familiar with and Scott Morrison, who I'm probably uh, just as excited to talk to Scott Morrison as I am Rick Vive uh, being a former reporter and him being a longtime editor of the Toronto Sun. So they're going to join us and you have a book that you're going to show up. That's uh, we'll show it up again later on when Rick and Scott uh, join us, but that's Rick Vibe's book um, that just came out. Uh, it's available at Indigo. We'll get into it a little bit with them, but when you th think of Rick Vive, what do you think about, uh, before, what, what, what comes to mind first when you think about Rick Vive, the, the hockey player? Well, I mean, growing up a North Star fan, you can probably tell that <laughs> I wasn't a fan. But you know what? But honestly, looking at hockey, I just um, – just a, a tenacious, gritty kind of, you know, uh, talented uh, forward beloved in, in, by the Leafs and, and by the fan base and, and um, just sort of, you know, just a real kind of icon, I think, at the time for the Leafs and somebody that – you know, scored 50 goals and all the great things that he did, which to the detriment of my North stars, but still, um, you know, I, but there's a, to be fair, and we'll get into the book. There's a lot. I just didn't know about Rick, to be honest with you, when I mm -hmm. kind of read, read through, through the book, but um, you were probably more a Leaf fan than I was. So what were you, what were your kind of indicate? You know, no, I'm not, I actually, I think that Leafs era is the reason I never became a Leaf fan because they were just, that was, the, that was the Harold Ballard years. They just before Rick had gotten, or I guess just as Rick was getting there, Daryl Sittler and all his friends were being traded, and it was it was probably the you know one of the worst eras in, in hockey history. But I, I mean, I yeah, I, re I remember him as uh, you know as actually I remember him more in Buffalo and Chicago, not um, just the impact because he went he was traded there Chicago and like produced right away. I think he had forty three goals. And then he went to Buffalo. He wasn't he wasn't playing a lot under Mike Keenan in Chicago, and went to Buffalo. And I think he scored 19 goals in a in 28 games, a really short period of time. And I remember the fanfare around that. But 
Yeah, I was a little, I wasn't, I wasn't surprised to hear about a story. So the book's called Catch-22, um, My Battles in, in Hockey and Life uh, by Rick Vibe and Scott Morrison. And so I, I wasn't surprised to hear him talk about anxiety and to hear him talk about alcoholism because that era, I mean, I just think about that era and I would imagine Rick's, Rick wasn't alone at the time, even though he would have felt like it. Um, but we, nobody was talking about those types of things, even alcoholism, like, even though it was rampant, uh, I, I, I doubt anybody would have had a crucial conversation with him during his playing career. Or very few people would have. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, you're right. The, it was a totally different year and it'll be interesting to talk to, to them a little bit about where we are today compared to the, to the past, but, um, and we'll get into just, you know, the, I, you know, you think about the toughness you know, you have no idea. I don't think people, they think, you know, athletes and it's glamorous and that, but the, you know, the mental abuse, <laughs> right. The, the things that they've had to go through and, and sort of a cutthroat business of the day, win, win or get lost kind of thing. But, you know, you would go back to a, just an interesting sort of anecdote. I remember the Harold Ballard days. And I remember when I first had my first, uh, when I was in J school and, and I was going to interview, uh, Neil Broughton. It was the North Stars and the Leafs at the time. And I remember it was the time where Harold Ballard banned all media from the dressing room from Toronto. If you remember that period. Yeah. And I was so nervous. I ended up walking and I went to the Leafs dressing room thinking I was going to the North Stars dressing room. And I remember security guard saying, there's no way, kid, you're getting in here. And I'm like, but I've got it. I booked it. I scheduled like it took me a while to realize I was at the wrong end. But I had this battle at the time. It was like the, the Harold Ballard fallout. Like you're not if you got a tape recorder and a notepad, you're not getting into this restaurant to <laughs> no. take a hike. Yeah. It was actually, you know, you don't know how much we'll get into Rick and Scott, you know, just because there's lots to cover. But when I was reading his book, one of the things that dawned on me, because he had Harold Ballard in, in Toronto, notoriously cheap, uh, and would really hard on players, really difficult on media. And... And then he went to Chicago, who Bill Wirtz, was, they called him Dollar Bill Wirtz because he was considered, the, you know, the other cheapest owner in, in sports. Yeah. And I mean, he didn't have too many stories about Bill Wirtz, but I just, you know, catch a break, you know, like you go yeah. from, from Toronto in that area era to, uh, to Bill Wirtz in Chicago. So it was, a, it was interesting reading the book because it brought back, even though I, you know, can't say I really followed Rick's career closely as, you know, in that era, but I did follow that era quite closely, right? Like that yeah. was that was right in the prime of my my hockey viewing youth, right? And uh, sure. so it was interesting to go back and and you know some of the names he brought up and some of the players that he coached uh, later on in life that like Jared Bednar is now a, the head coach of the Colorado Avalanche and Rick had him in the East Coast Hockey League, so it's kind of neat um, for somebody who doesn't read a lot of hockey books. Like I can't say that uh, I've read a lot of players' uh, autobiographies. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I thought it was kind of interesting and that kind of takes you down memory lane a little bit. Yeah, for sure. So, so without further ado, we'll kick it off and we'll go right to uh, our next guest, the aforementioned uh, Scott Morrison and Rick Five. So we're pleased to welcome our, our guests. We have former 50 goal scorer, actually this, what the first Leaf in franchise history to score 50 goals, did it three times in the 80s former captain and author of uh, the, the book, Catch-22, My Battles in Hockey and Life, Rick Vive. There you see Chris is holding your book up. 
<laughs> and uh, written with uh, Scott Morrison, long time. You'll recognize him from Sportsnet Hockey Night in Canada. Chris and I are probably just as excited to talk to you because we're former reporters and we remember you as uh, the editor of the Toronto Sun back or back in the day. So welcome to you as well, Scott. Good to be here. Thanks for having us. Yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of neat. I, uh, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. So we're going to talk, you know, a bunch of different things uh, today, but we're going to start, you know, with both you and um, both Rick and, and Scott, just to see how you guys are doing. This is obviously an unusual time in society. So how are you keeping up with your, your mental and your physical health in these kind of unusual times? Well, uh, probably try to do as much as possible. I mean, I, I'm not out a whole lot or anything or going anywhere or doing things, but, uh, you know, I watch TV. I got my treadmill in the basement and a little set of weights and kind of try to do as much as I can. I, I don't do a whole lot these days, but I do get on the treadmill and, and walk, uh, try to walk uh, five to 10 miles a day and uh, sometimes get a little jog in as well. But other than that, uh, not a whole lot. Yeah, I mean, uh, summer was despite everything that was happening around us in this world summer was great because the weather was so good so tons of golf and rick golfed every day and i golfed <laughs> almost every day and uh and uh so and you know the backyard it was just great so you could get outside and do your walks and and have some fun and all that winter a bit of a different challenge so yeah get a treadmill downstairs do some walking there and uh and otherwise try to stay preoccupied with the uh, promoting a book and uh, working on some ideas for new projects. So uh, great. My son's home. Uh, he's in university, but he's home now. So that's uh, great to have him here and uh, keep me a little sane and uh, have somebody to talk to and uh, share break bread with uh, every night. So that's, a, that's a fabulous thing. You, you mentioned in the, acknowledgments of the book your son you know basically praising him for tolerating you as you finished the book did you did you start writing the book like before the pandemic and then finished it like when did the kind of the process start yeah we started uh i guess ricky we were doing interviews last fall october november yeah. that sort of range and then i wrote through the winter and you know i'd be shipping him uh, chapters to to read and uh and uh, fill in some of the gaps that uh, we came across. And uh, so once the pandemic came, I was feeding chapters to the publisher at, or my editor at that point. And so, as I said to people with beyond the, the, the bigger picture of the world, my days didn't change too much because I would get up, I go to my computer, I'd be writing, I'd be editing, I'd be talking to the, to the, uh, to our editor, Craig Payette and, uh, the only difference was occasionally I could walk across to a, there's a, a mall near my house where I'd meet some friends for lunch occasionally. And all of a sudden that wasn't happening anymore. So it was, it, it, it imposed some discipline for my deadline hunting. So it, uh, the days didn't change too dramatically. Scott, I want to, um, before we get into the book and I finished the book last night and really enjoyed it. Um, and I'll hold it up as many times as you want. That'll be my my exercise, I guess. But I, I want to talk a little bit about, you know, Daryl said we were both kind of print print journalists. And, and, and I want to talk a little bit about sports journalism, because I see now more and more websites pop up where um, 
they're taking content from respected journalists, you know, like yourself or experts that are in the field, putting it in a story, slapping their byline on. And, and although they give credit to the information, they're trying to drag people to their website. And I'm just worried about the future of, of sports journalism and, and people that are experts and have spent so many years crafting and doing that. Um, you know, what is the future with some of these things coming up and, and being able to determine and, and get to sort of really good sports journalism and not get lost in this sort of web? So- well, thanks for the kind words about the book, first of all, and glad you enjoyed it. And uh, I don't know, the, the, the future is, I don't want to be the the rainer on, on the parades, but it, it doesn't feel bright. Let's put it that way. Uh, obviously, we, we know what's happening with print journalism and how that's shrinking. We're seeing uh, television journalism shrinking as well because of cord cutting and everything's becoming the, the five-minute hit for streaming and, and, and all of that. And the attention span of the world shrinks. It's, what is it, 180 characters on Twitter? That's as far as people go. Um, I, I like to think there's still a lot of good, dedicated people that will keep putting out great information. But to your point, yeah, it's uh, there's a lot of poachers out there and they're, they're poaching not only just from journalists, they're poaching from networks, content and all of that. And that's what's threatening the overall industry as well. So it's, uh, it's a scary time out there. And it's, uh, you know, I think with, without getting political, what we've seen certainly south of the border and to a degree north of the border too, our side of it, um, journalism plays a big, big role in our society. It's a, it's a, a police force unto itself. And to lose that voice or to have that voice be reduced is not going to be good for our general society. I, I agree and concur. I, you know, I read stuff now and I don't know if that person's uh, in the locker room or in the mom's basement. And it's the, the lines are getting a little bit more blurred. Well, the tough part is that 90% of them are in mom's basement, <laughs> but they're, they're portraying themselves as actual journalists and they've never been in a locker room in their life. And a lot of people who are in the mainstream media uh, and, you know, there's some really talented up and coming people, but a lot of them haven't had experience. And so they're talking and without having had been in a dressing room and sat down next to a work vibe and talked about a game or a practice or what's going on with the team, they're just talking <laughs> and talking without, they're talking with fans knowledge, but not face-to-face knowledge, if, if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. So that's a good segue to like, we might as well bring Rick in since it's his book, but um, why, when you decided to, to write a book, uh, why did you choose to work with Scott? Well, I think the main reason was uh, I knew Scott. I've known Scott obviously since the '80s when he covered us uh, when I played for the for the Leafs, and uh, you know he was always very, very uh, honest. He didn't, you know, I mean, he wrote what you said, and and you know there was writers at the time that would throw things in there that that you. Uh, probably didn't say or or they would twist it around somehow to make it more sensational and and that sort of thing scotty didn't do that and then you know of course over the years we've been together at a lot of different uh golf tournaments and appearances and different events and uh you know so we've gotten to know each other pretty good he's a guy i really trust and i said i really respect how he wrote 
So I said, you know, the only guy I'm going to write it with is Scotty. And uh, uh, if I do write a book, and this is going back, you know, many years where a lot of people were saying, why don't you write a book and everything. And I knew that, you know, I never really said it. I said it a few times, but most of the time it was just in my head that, yeah, maybe one day, but there's only one guy I'm going to write it with, and that's Scott. And Rick, was there a point where, I mean, I know when you wrote the book that you wanted to give an honest account and be able to to say the things that you wanted to say. Was that, was this the right time? Like, were were you looking back, how long you were thinking about it, maybe, you know, in your career when you're still doing things that maybe you didn't want to come out at that time? Like, was this, was this a good opportunity uh, in your, in your life to sort of tell that story? Yeah. I I mean, it was good timing. It was, uh, you know, I, I'm in a real good place in my life right now. I'm probably the, you know, one of the best places I've been in a long, long time. I had a grand grandson, our first grandchild 16 months ago. And it, you know what? It, it, we're, we moved to Niagara Falls from Oakville seven years ago and, and things are really good. And, and I, I just thought, you know what, I'm in a good, real good place right now in my life. And, and I think it's time to, to get the story out there of what I went through, not only on the ice, but off the ice as well. And, uh, uh, you know, I think everybody probably comes to a point in their life where, yeah, this is the right time. And I just felt last fall that, uh, that this was the right time that I I'm, I'm feeling good about where I am and, and, it's time to do it in the book. And we'll, we'll touch on them in greater depth in a bit, but you, you obviously talk about, you know, battle with alcoholism and, and anxiety. And I wonder, and it's actually more directed to, to Scott as you're, you've known Rick for all these years, you saw him play. Um, you know, you, you mentioned you, your relationships has grown over the years. Was it still a, a real project of discovery as you were writing the book, like learning more? Was there a lot about Rick that you didn't know that you discovered in the process of writing this book? Absolutely. I mean, uh, obviously, I knew all the things that happened on the ice. I knew a lot of things that happened off the ice, hockey-related, just being around the team at the time and uh, you know, being there virtually every day of a season. Uh, some of the personal stuff, obviously, I, I, I didn't know. And, uh, you know, back in the 80s, it, it was a different time. And uh, I knew that, uh, you know, the guys after practice would go have beers um, because a lot of the reporters did, too. <laughs> You'd go for lunch and uh, we'd just leave sooner because we had deadlines. And um, uh, it was just a different mindset. And the travel was different back then. So you, you got to spend time with uh, with people because they didn't always longer uh, road trips they wouldn't charter so the, the team would stay overnight so you'd you'd see guys after the game you'd have a beer you'd have a bite to eat you got to know them a lot better but no you know I had no no idea that uh, what Rick was dealing with uh, on that side I knew a lot of the personal side I knew his wife and uh, and whatnot but in, and his agent Bill Waters who wrote our forward but I didn't know uh, those things that he was dealing with so yeah it was uh it was eye-opening. I mean, we'd had conversations, as Rick mentioned, at various points over the years about talking about. At one point, we were talking about just doing a like a major magazine type piece, and then <clears throat> the idea of a book evolved. And so, he shared uh, a bunch of the stuff that uh, we ultimately uh, ended up writing about. But uh, I didn't know it to uh, 
the degree. So it was an eye opener for me, for sure. What was uh, what was an eye opener for me reading the book was, you know, the era that it's in. It sounded like the best men's hockey league team ever. Because you guys, <laughs> I, like, it, there's a lot of there's a lot of going to the bars, like you mentioned, a lot of talk about you know, kind of that era was smoking, you know, like different things, and I found it kind of funny in hindsight. Rick, you don't mention uh, a, a weight or an exercise program until your tenth season in Chicago when Mike Keenan arrives. Um, so I, I think it just like to, for for people that aren't familiar with that era, like. Um, like conditioning and exercise, although I, I, I know you guys worked out and exercise, but it's the level back then compared to now, it's, it couldn't be more different. Oh, there's no question. I mean, uh, you know, you look at the guys now and it, but I mean, now it's an 11 month a year uh, job. I mean, they got to work out. They may take a month off and then every team has skating coaches, strength and conditioning coaches, the individual players, they all have, their own coaches back home and they go home for the summer skating coaches, skill coaches. Um, they're, they're out there for, for months in the off season uh, doing all this stuff. And uh, yeah, we, we rode bikes and did a little bit of weight training during the summer. But I think one of the factors too, is that we had like probably two to three weeks before we even played an exhibition game when we came to training camp. So Part of it was you did as much as you possibly could, which we didn't do a whole lot, but we would skate the whole month of August and, and early September before camp started uh, pretty much five days a week uh, and scrimmage and stuff like that. And, and before that, we like I said, we'd ride the bike a little bit and do some weights. and then. But training camp was the time to really get in shape, and, and we had enough time to do that before we hit the ice for exhibition games. Now – they get to camp and three days later they're playing exhibition games. So they have to be in top condition when they get to camp because they can't look bad in, in exhibition games or they're not going to make the hockey club. Well, to Rick's so, point, I was just going to say, Ricky, back in that the day you did have two or three weeks would be skating in the morning, mm -hmm. scrimmaging in the afternoon. It was two days. They were full days. Now they're on the ice for 90, 90 minutes tops and, and see you later into the gym or here, there and everywhere. And, uh, the summers you guys played, you, know, you had softball teams and things like that to <laughs> keep you "quote unquote" active. But uh, they were also, also sponsored by a brewery, so that was a <laughs> yeah. And the other thing too is, don't, uh, I mean, the training facilities that that they have today, I mean, are, are unbelievable. I mean, even like right in their their own dressing room area. I mean, you can go in and there's a full-blown gym and and there's a strength and conditioning coach, like I said, who puts you through everything that you need to go through in order to get yourself in peak condition. So, yeah, I mean, a lot of things have changed and uh, and I understand it. I get it 100%. I mean, these, these are big assets to these hockey clubs and they're paying them a lot of money. So, you know, they need to follow those things and, and make sure that they're they're at their best when they hit the ice. Just as an aside, I can remember there'd be after practice, sometimes after games in the leaf dressing room, certainly when they're, they're at home, they had a stick room. One of the, the equipment guy had his own little room and the guys back in the day with the wooden sticks, they'd use a blowtorch to, to put a curb in their stick. A lot of times you go into that room, that was the smoking room. So you'd have to go in to interview them. They'd be using the blowtorch to, to light their darts and... Uh, <laughs> 
and you'd be interviewing with the the, the cigarettes going on. So it was a yeah, it was a different time on the world yeah. on all levels, not just the sports world, but on all levels changed dramatically as 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 the years went on. Yeah, it's hard to picture Connor McDavid doing that today. <laughs> Well, and I mean, the stories are famous of Guy Lafleur running down the runway at uh, the Montreal Forum, and a guy would have a dart r- between shifts, and somebody would <laughs> be standing there with a cigarette, and he'd take a couple of puffs and back out, he'd go to the pitch. Speaking of changes, I mean, Rick, reading the book, obviously, you, you've come across some, I would say, maybe toxic personalities in your career. Um I'm just curious. So someone like a, a Mike Keenan, you know, people will acknowledge his coaching ability, but you know, the emotional tactics he used to try and squeeze effort out, you know, at the expense of long-term gain, really short-term. And, and I'm just wondering, culturally now with, with the, uh, you know, societal attitudes changing, younger kids coming in and the investment, do you think, is hockey, maybe I'll post to both, are we seeing a change in that sort of emotionally toxic culture that, that you know, sort of comes out in the book at times? Yeah, I, I think it's uh, changed quite a bit. And, uh, you know, Mike, Mike was a good coach. There's no question about that. And it, he was probably – him and Rick Dudley were the two most prepared coaches I ever had. Um, Mike just had a different way to try and push your buttons and, and get the most out of you. And, I mean, it is what it is. That's kind of the way it was back then. And now I think they, they have to take a different approach because the kids are different. Uh they grow up differently. And, you know, I always equate it to uh, like when I played a coach, uh, you know, if he said, I want you to go through that wall for me, you, on the way back, you'd ask him how you did. And now if a coach asks a player to go through a wall, the, the player would likely say, well, why? And, you know, why is it good for me to do that? And why does, how does that help the team? So, he wants to know in advance why he's doing what he's what he's being told to do. Back then, you didn't question it; you just did it. And uh, so, you know that 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 has turned around a hundred and eighty percent. I mean, it's just totally different than it was like forty years ago, or thirty-five, or even probably twenty-five years ago, uh, twenty years ago. It's, it's so much different now because the the kids are different, the coaches are different, and uh, you have to. Uh, approach things differently than you did in, in other eras. I guess the investments, maybe I'll turn to Scott, and plus, you know, the salaries you're paying and the yeah. investments in players. Sorry, Scott, go ahead and jump in on that. Well, I was just going to say the players didn't have any control back then. So you, unless you were a star, you couldn't say anything because players were on one-way contracts. They'd ship to the minors. You go from 100 grand to 20 grand, just like that. And they didn't have any kind of power. But I think if you look at society, the relationship I have with my son is probably different, vastly different than the relationship I had with my dad, you know, 30, 40 years ago. Right. It's just the things have evolved. And to Rick's point, you know, it's just the the kids are different and more educated and uh, maybe educated isn't the right way to put it, but a little more worldly and uh, just those relationships have evolved. So, uh, and we've seen that in sports. And now the player is, everybody realizes that the player is the asset and the coaches has to uh, have to adapt to uh, how they motivate and, and get the best out of them. In a case of a, a Keenan or a Bowman um, and some other coaches back in those days, part of their motivation was 
they made the coach the common denominator for the players. Hate the coach, and we'll 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 win despite him. And that worked for a lot of them. And uh, you know that brought teams together. That was sort of the mindset of the of the day. And I guess maybe the word is that we've all become a little more sophisticated. And you know, I, Mike's a good friend of mine, for instance, and and he says. I can't believe some of the stuff I did back then. He said, I would never, I would never do it today, but it was a different time. Sure. Speaking of things that would never fly, um, got to get into Harold Ballard, you know, the former owner of the Leafs, uh, who was, you know, who was there your whole Leafs career. And uh, for people that like, it's, it almost, it almost seems unimaginable now in pro sports because whenever like Mark Cuban's considered controversial in today's uh, sports ownership area uh harold ballard you know would you know would pick on players you know obviously a well-documented feud with daryl sittler uh you get mentioned in the media uh was very common so from both of yours perspective like, like i as a fan in that era i would i would call it a circus right i would call what the leafs were in those in those days like the coaches coming in and out of circus like, can you put it into words what it's like to play? What it was like to play in that environment, Rick? And for you, Scott, being a, like a, a young reporter at the time, like what was it like covering the Leafs on a daily basis in that in that time? Well, I think you hit it right on the head with uh, the circus part because that's basically what it was like on a daily basis. And uh, getting back to what Scott had mentioned just prior to this was, uh, you know, the stars could – you know, talk to people, the, the brass and so on. But in Toronto, that wasn't the case. I mean, you know, even though perhaps, you know, technically I was the star of the team or Boria, I mean, we couldn't go to Harold or, or Jerry McNamara or even sometimes the coaches and suggest anything because it wasn't going to get through. But you know what? It, I always look at it, though. I mean, Harold was a, a character and, I mean, like I say, it was a circus and he was a ringleader. And, but back then, the owners controlled everything. And we had no leverage whatsoever as players. I mean, free agency was 32 years old. Uh, they had Al Eagleson in their back pocket, uh, most of the owners. And, and uh, you know, so our, our uh, player association was run by a guy who was always on the side of the owners. So, um that made it even more difficult, but uh, it, I always looked at it as, look, you know, just kind of put that aside. My job is to go out and be the best hockey player I can every day and every night that, that, that we play a game. And uh, fortunately for me, I had the ability to do that and kind of forget about all the other stuff that Harold and everybody else was doing around us. Well, from a, reporter standpoint it was a circus there's that's the absolute best word to describe it um some days for our from our perspective it was wildly entertaining because you were making headlines and it, but it was also nerve-wracking because you never knew from day to day to day what Harold was going to say and who he was going to say it to and so and the you know three well it was actually four papers because Hamilton was on the beat at the same time and along with the sun the star in the globe and so it was very very competitive and uh you just never knew when your phone was going to ring after the first edition of the paper came out and somebody saying harold said this we got to get a story and it was like oh god here we go <laughs> but uh i was lucky because um, for whatever reason he liked me and uh 
there'd be days I'd be sitting at my desk. I'd be, just be finished writing my story, at, you know, on an off day after practice story and thinking about <clears throat> getting ready to go home. The phone would ring five o'clock, six o'clock, and it'd be Harold. And he'd say, I got one for you today. And he'd come out with some wild stab at something. Some days they were great stories. Some days you just said, okay, Harold, thanks for, thanks for the call. And you'd hang up and then he's uh, getting goofy today. He's trying, he's making up stuff. And, uh, but other days it'd be uh, front page news and he'd come up with something. And it was like, and Ricky knows this, whether the team was winning, sometimes when they had success, he seemed to get more outrageous because he wanted the limelight. He wanted to be on the front page. And I think sometimes he was jealous of his players and jealous of his team. As much as he loved them and wanted them to win, he, he couldn't stop getting himself in front of the story all the time. And because I remember they were having success one year in the playoffs and the general manager's contract was coming due. And he'd already signed him to an extension, but gave me a story that, so they didn't announce the extension, but he already he gave me a story in the middle of a playoff series that they're winning that I'm not sure this guy is good enough and he's going to be back next year. And then all of a sudden the attention's away from the players and it's, it's over here with the media chasing after Harold to see what, what he's going to say next. And so he just, he couldn't stop getting in the way. It's probably the best way to put it. Is that good for you, Rick? Does it take the pressure off the players when they're one who's getting all the all the media during during tough times, or 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 was it just you know you just sort of like you said, put your head down and just ignore the noise and focus on what you got to do? Yeah, I think for most of the guys it was that way. I think uh, unfortunately there was guys brought in, and and I you know I blame that on the general manager more so than the owner. But uh, guys, we drafted actually pretty good. But these, these kids at 18 years old, um, you know, the majority of them, and I can, I can list uh, like Jim Benning, Gary Nyland, Boinstruck, uh, uh, even Russ Cornell to a degree, uh, they, they were not mentally and physically ready to play in the National Hockey League, and they could have gone back to junior for a year or two. Uh, so aside from those guys, the rest of the guys, yeah, they, I mean, most of the older players are the guys that got it realize that they got to put that aside what Harold's doing or what you know whoever is saying and just go out and do your job uh, but it was hard on those young guys and I, I always felt bad for them because they were put into uh, a situation where, where they, they weren't going to win and and most of those guys ended up having short careers and 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 didn't reach the potential that they could have the other thing was like Harold did it. If you think back to the seventies, the late seventies, they had Roger Nielsen as a coach who was widely regarded. Jim Gregory, general manager, well regarded. They were on the verge of of success, and then he got in the way of that and dismantled that. And then you were coming in on the tail end of all that, Ricky. And uh, then he got into the fights with Sittler and Palmateer, and then it became you know just moving players out. And and, and Rick says it in the book as, as, as much as some really nice and good people and, and well-meaning people were brought in to coach and manage, they weren't the at the top of the game. And he would never bring that person in to help get these teams 
over the top. One of the revelations for me, and when I look back at the roster, it was, I thought, you know, there was a ton of talent on those 80s teams, but they didn't have the management talent to get over the hump, be able to make that trade. Like when a Cliff Fletcher came in in the 90s and made some deals and, you know, the conversation that Ricky had with Wendell Clark, that Wendell thought their 80s, some of their 80s teams were better talent-wise than that 93 team that had the great run in Toronto. But the difference there was a coach named Pat Burns and a manager named Cliff Fletcher. Yeah, and a plan, I guess. Yeah. Like I, that's yeah. what I, I noticed going through the book, like the going through the names again, it's like, because when you first mentioned it, like how good that, those teams were, I'm kind of like, really? And then when you actually look at the roster and the, and the, and the careers that some of those guys had in other places, and, and when you factor in them being rushed uh, to the NHL, probably just because they had a cheap contract, yeah, like that team did, you know. Because 18 or 19 then isn't what we have as yeah, 18, exactly. 19-year-olds now. Yeah. So just to uh, kind of change course a little bit, uh, getting into kind of some of the more personal stuff that you reveal in the, in the book, Rick, uh, you know, you, you mentioned your battle, you know, with, uh, with alcoholism. But there was one moment in the book where you talk about uh, being diagnosed with anxiety and uh, kind of ma- kind of like all of a sudden making sense uh, to some of the things that you've, you've you know, went through in your life. So I wonder if you could take a take us through that day that you were you were diagnosed uh, with anxiety for the first time. Well, uh, actually, it wasn't really truly diagnosed until I was 35 years old and I was coaching at the time. Um, you know, I went to the doctors. I said, you know, look, uh, something wrong. Like, I mean, there's times where I have trouble swallowing and I'm, I get, you know, really anxious and, and stuff. And, and they said, oh, you know, it's just uh, part of the, you know, what you're going through with the game and everything else. And, uh, you know, it was never really diagnosed properly. And uh, then the only thing that I could do to control that was drink. And, you know, that would... Uh, would take away that that anxious feeling and that anxiety. And then when I quit drinking at 35 the first time around, then uh, our do- it came back again. And our doctors in South Carolina, Charleston, where I was coaching, diagnosed it, tried, you know, a bunch of different medications, found one that worked. And uh, it made me, it made me a, a, a completely different person. I didn't have to deal with that anymore. And, uh, you know, I always wonder what would have happened if that had been done in 1980. And, you know, maybe I wouldn't have drank as much or maybe, uh, I mean, I think I was predisposed uh, to uh, the gene. It was in my mother's family and, and in, in my father's family as well. Uh, the alcohol gene that is, and or alcoholism. And, you know, I think, but had I not drank hardly at all during that time because of, the proper medication and the proper care, uh, the chances of maybe are that I wouldn't, it wouldn't have got as bad as it did. And, uh, you know, but who knows? I mean, that's the question is would it, or would it have not? And, uh, would I have been a better player? Would I have done better? I, I don't know. I really don't understand. Uh, but, again, when I, when I got diagnosed when I was 35 and get on the right medication, it changed my life. I, you know, uh, I was coaching at the time and it made me a completely different person. 
So Rick, when you, when you talk about the anxiety, you mentioned that you're surprised, you know, obviously with the fear of flying and all the things you're surprised that you were able to have a career in the NHL. And I guess, you know, it's anxiety is such a funny thing because, you know, some of it, a bit of it is good and having it all the time is bad. But I wonder for a lot of people who have anxiety, they're, they're often um, driven to work harder because they're afraid of failing. And did you find maybe that that anxiety led you to like, did you have a fear of not contributing or working harder because you didn't want to fail or like, or did it, was it maybe potentially crippling instead? Um, I don't believe it really helped me in any way. I think uh, I was always driven anyway. I mean, even from the time I was a young kid, I was driven to be the best at everything I could possibly do. Um, the anxiety, if anything, I thought, uh, I think was probably the worst thing for me because I was already driven anyway. I didn't need anything to push me to be the best that I could be. And uh I think if anything, it led me to drink more. And, and I think if it was counterproductive uh, when, when everything is said and done, because, you know, you're going out some nights and drinking eight, 10 beer and, and, you know, and then you got to play the, uh, the two days later and, you know, come to find out uh, after studies have been done that, yeah, you could go out and have a, a good time. And the next day you're not going to feel it that much. It's the following day that you're going to really, feel it in your body and uh and of course that's exactly what happened uh we played a game we'd go out because we weren't playing the next day but we were playing the following day and then you go out on the ice and you were thinking holy cow like my legs feel like cement blocks and, and so on but the day before that at practice you were flying all over the place so um yeah I, anxiety didn't drive me to be better uh, I already had that in me. I, I think, if anything, it was counterproductive. Scott, I wonder, like, from your perspective in that era, like during Rick's career, what do you think would have happened if Rick had come out and if he had known that he was dealing with anxiety and it went public or he chose to make it public? Uh, what, what do you think the reaction would have been back in the in the 80s? Uh it wouldn't be nearly as supportive as it would be now or as understanding. I think um, <clears throat> probably back then that would be looked at as being a weakness as, as opposed to an illness. And, you know, I think as we, we all think back and probably have family members and others that a lot of people were and colleagues, a lot of people were dealing with issues, but didn't say anything because of that, that you were, not going to be supported by, in this case, an owner or management necessarily, uh, that they look as you look at you as being damaged goods and uh, therefore move on to the next person. And uh, so I think the whole, I think society at that time would not have been uh, close to understanding of it. Understanding A, what the issue is, and then B, understanding of what the person is dealing with and what they need to, to move forward. Yeah, I think if I could just jump on that, I mean, there's no question in my mind that, you know, had that been dealt with and I had came out and talked about it. I mean, I think pretty much all my teammates, uh, with the exception of maybe a couple, probably, you know, it would have been, uh, how do I put it? Would it, 
they would have looked down on you and and uh, like Scott said, as like, you know, ah, that's, you're weak. You're, you're never going to play in this league and, yeah, and, suck, and, it honestly, up and suck it up and play. Right. Yeah, exactly. And that's, uh, you know, that that's coming from your, your, your teammates. That's not coming from the management that's coming from your teammates. So, you know, that's how things have evolved over the years is that, you know, now it's acceptable to have, uh, mental issues and, and anxiety and, and, and all those types of things. It, it, it it's uh, in society today, it's accepted and it's talked about. And, but back then you couldn't come out and talk about it because you were perceived as a weak individual. And the, and, and the fear would be for the, for the player or even people in my business, any business is that you'd be kicked to the curb because mm-hmm. you didn't have a lot, the same kind of feeling of rights at the time. So Scott, I was, I've asked this of other other people in, in hockey, but um, you know, mental health started to come to the forefront from a media standpoint. Around you know, there was a lot around Wade Belock and Derek Bugard, and but at the time, it still felt like uh, we didn't treat hockey players as regular people. So if if somebody had an issue, it was probably because they had head trauma. So I, do you think we've done enough to to showcase players as they can have anxiety just because you make a million dollars doesn't mean you can't have anxiety or, or depression or things that they go through. But, but it felt like at that time, we still tried to say, Oh, there must be a reason. And it must've been not that they're normal people. They must've had too much fighting or head trauma. So are we, are we at a place where we're actually recognizing athletes as just every, they can have the same challenges that everybody else does in society. I think I'll let Rick answer that first, but I'll just briefly say that that's the essence of his story. Yeah. That I had a great life as a professional athlete, uh, but I also had everyday issues. Yeah, that, I mean, I think that's the biggest thing that, uh, and, and one of the, that was one of the reasons why I wanted to write the book because, uh, you know, I know a lot of people uh, and I hear it and I see it with a lot of people assuming that because you made the money you made and, and well, of course, it's a heck of a lot more now than it was when I played, but, um, but I made good money relative to the normal individual and, and, uh, uh, you know, they look at that and uh, they think, oh, you know, wow, he played 13 years in the NHL. He must have had a great life growing up and everything's great. And now he's he's living in a mansion and he's rich. And, you know, uh, I don't think there's a lot of people out there to understand that we're normal individuals, regardless of whether we play in the NHL. And I'm talking about the current players as well in all the major leagues. You have you have hurdles and and challenges that you have to overcome in, in, in your life. And um, you're no different than, than anybody else in the world. And, uh, you know, we, back in the eighties, it was dealt with so much differently than it is now. And, uh, you know, so uh, yeah, that was one of the reasons because it, I, I think a lot of people look at it so much differently than it really was. We look at teams now too, and to, your point, Chris, is that teams have psychologists now. <laughs> that didn't exist back in the 80s. And you've got a place to go. The NHL Players Association and the NHL have a, a place that you can go in privacy to share whatever issues you're dealing with if you so desire. So there's just a lot more avenues now. So 
they're doing a lot more. I think we're all much more understanding. And I think the, the league and the association are trying their best together to offer the best possible help for, for the players. Uh, is there more that can be done? There's always more that can be done, but I think they've advanced it tremendously. As you have been making the tour, I guess virtually because of the, the pandemic, uh, you might not have had the, the chance to interact with people like you would have traditionally, but Rick, I'm wondering, have you had much reaction from people specifically about disclosing your mental health issues? Have, have people reached out to you to indicate what it means to them for you to, to speak out? Um, no, not, not that much uh, so far. I mean, I think probably, uh, you know, once a lot of people get to finish the book and, and read the book, I, I'm pretty sure that I'll probably hear from, from good friends and, and people, uh, you know, I, I know that, I've had a lot of calls from people. Uh, they say, Hey, I, I got a book. Can you sign it for me? Or can you sign it for my dad? I'm giving it to him for Christmas and stuff like that. Um, and I kind of say, well, uh, no, we're not having any signings. So ship it to me and, uh, you know, I'll, I'll gladly sign it and then I'll get it shipped back to you. But, uh, I think later on, once, uh, a lot of them will get them as Christmas gifts and, I'm pretty sure that uh, a lot of my uh, friends that I played with and so on are going to probably reach out to me and, and talk about it. I think, Daryl, the, the one feedback that both Rick and I have, uh, have noticed and received and, and we're very happy about is that the people who have reviewed the book and done, and done the interviews, the one thing they've said is, wow, you were so honest in that book of telling your story. And I think... I think as it again as it gets into the, the hands of the readers and we start to I guess Christmas will be a, a big push in terms of feedback again but that that'll be the reaction of uh, I think a lot of people and that's when we started this project and talked about it many years ago and then when we got closer to to lift off the one thing we both said is this has got to be 100% honest there's no sugar coating here because otherwise it's just it's not the right thing to do. So I applaud him for that. That's not an easy thing to do. Well, I know that uh, if you haven't got the reaction yet, it's coming because uh, there's Chris showing the, the book again. But the the mental I'm health. My name up, Chris. Oh, sorry. Put that right there. The mental health community. Uh, is in dire need of ambassadors and uh, once you know kind of we return to some level of normalcy and we start having events and speaking engagements again i know i know the mental health community is going to be reaching out to you rick uh and uh you know you might have you might have gotten a couple extra gigs just by being uh, honest about what you've gone through in your life well, I mean, I, uh, that, would, that would be awesome but because uh, I'd love to sh share my story with everybody else. And, and also, you know, I, I, in the book, uh, my wife uh, suffers uh, as well from uh, uh, not anxiety, but uh, depression. And her father had depression and her grandfather, her father's father, committed suicide uh, because of depression. So, um She's on medication, obviously, for quite some time that, that helps her. But, I mean, there's times where she has a real bad day and she's just not feeling good. And, you know, and, and it's hard. It's very, very difficult for me, too, because I'm the one 
you know, that, that has to try and, and, and help her through that day. And, and I see it and it's, I, I can tell you right now, it's not a real fun thing to see because, uh, you know, she, she is obviously in a dark place some days and, and doesn't feel like getting up out of, uh, out of bed or, or off the couch or anything. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to watch that. But we certainly, I mean, we appreciate you sharing that. I think a lot of people feel like they're alone and no one else can relate to what they're going through. And I think, you know, the more we do as, as, as parents, and we talk about this as well for our kids to, you know, if they're going through things to reach out. So um, we're, we're always very thankful when, when people like you, Rick, share, share that with, with the broader community, because I think it, it, it changes their perspective of, of this being something that they're living with in silence and, and more likely to, to reach out and get help. So I appreciate that. Yeah, no problem. I think, uh, I think it's important. I mean, you know, I, you know, it's, it's getting better. Uh, you know, as Scotty mentioned, there's no question that, uh, you know, people are coming out and talking about it a little bit more, but it, it can always get better. And, and, you know, more, the more people, especially people that, you know, people look up to or whether, or they're in a position of power and they come out that they deal with this sort of thing. I think that's even a stronger message to everybody else that, you know what, you know, if, you, if you're dealing with, with struggles and going through that sort of thing, uh, all you need to do is, is talk to someone and, and the help is there available to you. So, Scott, as we kind of get closer to wrapping things up, I, I heard you describe yourself as semi-retired uh, in, a, <laughs> in a previous interview. Uh, what are you up to? Like, what's next on, on the horizon for you? And if people want to uh, follow you, where can they, where can they do that? Well, I'm, I'm not. When I say semi-retired, I'm. I'm. I guess I'm quote unquote retired because I'm not no longer doing the day-to-day media life at Sportsnet and Hockey Night. Uh, we parted ways a year ago uh, in July, and uh, which allowed me time to be able to write Rick's book at peace. I've written many books, and I always did them when I had a full-time job. So it was kind of nice to do it at my own pace, and. Uh, and that was my job. And so uh, the plan moving forward is just uh, I've got a couple of book offers that I'm contemplating and uh, going to be moving forward with that just to keep myself busy and uh, and be a, a bad golfer when the weather permits. <laughs> <laughs> and Rick, uh, you have you have a podcast that you do as well. So it's called The Squid and the Ultimate Leafs Fan. And uh so people may not know why you're called squid. So can you give us a, that short story? Cause it's, it's hilarious. If you know, John Brophy at all and, uh, and where can people find, find you next? Well, uh, I mean, I'm on Instagram and, uh, I, I don't know that much about social media, but, but I, I started doing it and, uh, uh, my sons are, are very, very smart and kind of helping me with it a little bit and so on. But, uh, but yeah, we have the podcast, Mike Wilson, the ultimate least fan of myself. And we have players on, uh, former players for the most part on every uh, week. And uh, we're taking a couple, a few weeks off here for the holidays, but uh, we'll have the best of all the episodes that we did uh, going on air in the next couple of the next two uh, Saturdays. But um you know, other than that, uh, I'm around and I'm not doing a whole lot right now. And uh uh, 
like Scott said, I, uh, in the summertime, hopefully uh, things get better. And I golfed almost every day this summer. So when the courses opened in May, finally, I, I, I don't think there was too many days that I didn't go out and play 18 holes. There might've been, might've been four or five the whole summer. <laughs> so, so it was kind of nice and hopefully uh, uh, that'll happen again this fall. I should and mention that I have a podcast as well with the aforementioned Mike Keenan, the Iron Mike Keenan podcast. So uh, we're on pause right now for the holidays too, but we'll be back. Uh, but they're available out there wherever you find podcasts. I'm not. <laughs> yes, yeah. I'm not savvy that way, but I just I show up and I talk. I ask no, questions. It's YouTube, like yeah, Spotify, Apple uh, Podcasts. It's probably on all those. Yeah, it's on all those platforms. Yeah. So thank you very much. And, and Squid, where'd you get that nickname before I let you go? Okay. So I was in Birmingham as a 19-year-old in the World Hockey Association. John Brophy's my coach. And, of course, we had the Baby Bulls, which was Craig Hartsburg, Ramage, Jingra, Pat Riggin. Uh, Hartsey. Yeah, I said Hartsey and, uh, oh, Michelle Goulet. And uh, anyway... One day in practice, we're doing power play at one end and everybody's doing drills at the other. So it was our uh, power play unit's turn to come down and, and do the power play. And all the guys are down there and, and bro standing at the blue line and at the top of his lungs, he's yelling squid. And finally, Craig Hartsburg said to him, well, who are you calling? And he said, Vive. And he said, oh, you mean Spud? So, you know, came from PEI. And of course, Brof with his colorful uh, thing said, Squid, Spud, I don't get him enough. What you call him? Just get him down here. And then, so anyway, Squid, it was Squid for the rest of the year. I go to Vancouver. Everybody just called me Rick or RV or, or something like that. I get traded to Toronto. We're playing Minnesota where I'm at the red line stretching in the warm up. And Craig comes up to me, and Dave Burroughs is standing or sitting beside me stretching. And he goes, Hey, Squid, how's it going? And Burroughs looks at me and he goes, squid? And I I didn't say anything. And then he started telling everybody else. And then uh, from that day on until right now, I'm still <laughs> squid. <laughs> 40 years later. Well, it was an interesting story, one of many in the book, uh, which Chris is going to show up one more time. It's, uh, <laughs> it's Catch-22, My Battles in Hockey and Life, available at Indigo. And it is, I read it as well, very good read. And uh, thank you both for, for sharing the experience of writing the book and talking mental health. Uh, we both appreciate it. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you. Yeah, thank Pleasure. you very much. It was, uh, it was fun.